Hi everyone, welcome to our online Sunday School class, Encounters with Jesus. These are episodes from the Gospel of Mark that uh, teach us how people responded to Jesus and interacted with him, and we learned something of Jesus' identity and mission. And uh, we're starting now some episodes from Mark chapter 9. And Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 is our text for today. Jesus has just informed his followers of the cost of discipleship, that it requires self-denial, taking up your cross, being willing to totally commit your life to him. Discipleship means a readiness to identify with Jesus in his suffering, to walk the path that he has set for us. And after that instruction, three of his disciples now get a, a privileged, up-close and personal look at Jesus's glory as the Son of God, as they see him transfigured on the mount. So Mark chapter 9 verse 1 says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Well, several years ago, here in Savannah, I attended a performance of Verdi's Requiem at the cathedral, hosted by the Savannah Philharmonic and Chorus, and uh, I don't think I had experienced anything quite like that up to that point in my life, and, and not since, where it was uh, just two hours of being enthralled with this beautiful music, caught up with it, mesmerized by it, captivated by it. It was powerful, powerfully performed, and uh, powerfully received, and the weightiness, the, the majesty of that performance made a lasting impression upon me. It was as if I caught a glimpse of glory. Well, we catch glimpses of glory every day. We're surrounded by glory. Psalm 19:1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, Psalm 29 summons us to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name and to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So if your eyes are open on Sunday, you should be absorbing and hearing and listening from the word of the Lord and seeing, beholding glory. Uh, that imagery of Psalm 29 is, is of this great storm sweeping across Israel and descending upon the gathered saints as they are worshiping in the temple. In his temple, says Psalm 29.9, all cry glory. Now, sometimes glory is better felt than telt, if we could put it that way. Uh, glory speaks of weight, value, worth. Of course, we're not adding anything to God's glory. We are beholding it, affirming it believing in it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said that the chief end for which God created the world is his own glory. God's glory has been defined as his unique excellence, his unique excellence. The glory of anything is the excellence that makes it first and therefore unique. So God's glory is that unique excellence that makes him supreme, towering over anything else. Uh, what's the glory of a whale, a blue whale? It's its massive size. Uh, it takes three school buses to reach the length of a, a blue whale, the largest mammal on the planet. If you uh, 
lifted a, a blue whale up by its tail. It would be 10 stories high, this massive, massive animal. What's the glory of the whale? It's massive size. What's the glory of Mount Everest? It's dizzying height. What is the glory of God? What is the unique excellence of God? He is the one and only God, supremely valuable, awesome, worthy, and majestic. There is no other, as Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. He alone is the source and sustainer of everything else. So to praise Mount Everest as the highest mountain on the planet is justice. To praise God for his glory is to acknowledge him for who he is. And that is our highest good as his creatures, is to rejoice in God's glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, says the psalmist in Psalm 115.3. So this episode here of Jesus' transfiguration affords his disciples an opportunity to catch a glimpse of eternal glory as Jesus' true nature, his humanity is unveiled, uh, his true nature shines through, that eternal glory shines through, and it becomes a, a, a source of encouragement. After Jesus has just given several hard, difficult sayings about discipleship regarding self-denial, cross-bearing, he's told them that he's going to die and suffer many things and rise from the dead. This is a glimpse of what awaits them if they follow after him. They must take up their cross, but they will share in his glory. And so I want us to see three things here that Mark describes for us. One is the power. They see the power of Christ in uh, this transfiguration moment. And then they see the glory of Christ. They catch a glimpse of his glory, and then they worship. What is the, what is the proper and supreme response when we see the glory of God? We worship. So number one is the power. We see the power of Christ. This is in verse 1. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, some have argued here that Jesus is mistaken uh, because it sounds like he's promising his disciples that some of them will not die until they have witnessed his power. And what they mean by that, what they think he means by that, is his second coming, that Jesus is going to come back during the lifetime of his disciples. Uh, that when Jesus says the kingdom of God coming with power, that's a reference to the final consummation, the grand finale of redemptive history. But uh, Jesus is not mistaken, obviously. There's, there's a better explanation here, and that's Jesus is speaking more of the immediate. That uh, although the second coming is not entirely out of view, that will be a grand and glorious moment. But the proximity of this statement to the pending transfiguration suggests that some standing here refers to the three disciples who would accompany Jesus and have this privileged look, this privileged glimpse into his glory. They would become, as Peter described in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, eyewitnesses to his majesty. They would witness the power of his kingdom. For a moment, the veil would be pulled back and they would see his power, his kingly majesty, uh, a foretaste of his resurrection glory. Romans 1, 4 says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection would demonstrate who he really was, not just another dead prophet. To pass off the scene, he's the son of God. So at that moment, at the moment, the disciples have experienced Jesus as a lowly, humble servant. His appearance, his physical appearance, his outward appearance was unimpressive. Maybe you have noticed that we never find any description of Jesus' physical appearance in the Gospels. Nothing. 
Um, Isaiah 53, 2 des describes him as having no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. But one day the Son of God will appear in royal majesty. He will come in the clouds. As Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So first there is uh, this view of God, the Son of God, in power. That's what's going to happen here at this transfiguration. We move from power then to glory. Accompanying this power, this demonstration of the power of the Son of God is the glory of God. So just remember where we are here in the, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark. At the end of chapter 8, it's as if the disciples are descending into a tailspin of sorts, as Jesus has predicted his death, his suffering, his rejection. It was so upsetting that Peter has to take him aside and rebuke Jesus and say, don't talk about loss, don't talk about defeat, we're, we're, we're people of victory, Jesus. Don't talk about crucifixion and all of that. And so Jesus has to go on to explain what his true work as a Messiah is going to be and then explains the cost of discipleship, the denial of oneself, taking up of one's cross. And you'll notice here in verse 2 that the transfiguration occurs six days after this bewildering exchange, after Jesus has just told them all of these hard, difficult things. And, and so this serves to reassure and encourage the disciples in the midst of their unsettledness. So verse 2 says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. What you have here is a reenactment, a reenactment of what Moses and what happened to Moses on Sinai. It's a reenactment of the first Sinai. So six days, uh, it's probably referring to the time between when Peter confessed back in Mark chapter 8 and verse 29 that you are the Christ, and now Jesus' transfiguration. So six days have passed. Uh, Mark here is making clear allusions, clear echoes to the ascent of Moses up Mount Sinai when he uh, drew near to God. In Exodus 24, 15, Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. So you have all of these parallels with Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration, and Moses in Exodus 24. Moses went up into the mountain. He ascended to the mountain. Jesus and his disciples went up to the mountain in verse 2. Uh, Moses remained there for six days. It has been six days after Peter's confession that Jesus ascends this holy mountain. We're told that clouds covered Mount Sinai. A cloud here overshadows Jesus and his disciples. We, we, we see in verse 7, Moses encounters the glory of the Lord. The disciples encounter the glory of Christ. Moses receives a revelation on Mount Sinai. The disciples receive revelation from God as a voice from heaven confirms that Jesus is the Son of God and they should hear him. Jesus and his disciples are on a high mountain, a glorious mountain, a virtual suburb of heaven. So with, with precise brevity, Mark captures a concise summary of what happens in verse 2. He was transfigured before them. To transfigure means to change. It was not that his nature changed. You can't change Jesus' nature, but that his outward visible appearance changed. He was metamorphosed, metamorphosed right in front of them. Uh, so for a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always there in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. So put yourself in the place of these disciples. 
We're told in Luke's account that they were heavy with sleep, Luke 9.32. So it's most likely maybe late at night, early evening. Uh, so, so think of a long hike up the mountain, the thin air at that altitude, the irresistible quiet that made sleep so inviting. And they awake to Jesus suddenly emblazoned with dazzling light, his clothes are radiant, as if they have been bleached 10,000 times. They've never seen him like this before. And it's not just Jesus who's there. Verse 4 says, There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So how do they know it was Elijah or Moses? Uh, we, we don't really know. Maybe they addressed each other by name in their conversation, or they introduced themselves to the disciples. How, how exhilarating would that be to suddenly have Moses there saying, hello, my name is Moses, or hello, my name is Elijah. Who knows? But uh, why do Moses and Elijah appear here? Well, we know that they were both great deliverers of Israel. Moses delivering the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. Elijah delivering the Israelites from Baal worship. Uh, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah because he fulfills both the law and the prophets. He is the consummation of the law and the prophets. So here they are having this extended conversation with Jesus. Uh, you say, what are they talking about? What, what kind of conversation does, do Moses and Elijah and Jesus have? Well, Luke tells us that they appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, that's Luke 9, 31. They were talking with Jesus about his imminent death. They were talking with him about the cross. So here's Peter, James, John, suddenly awaken. They see the glory of Christ. They see their heroes, Moses and Elijah. And Peter becomes talkative in his terror. Uh, Jesus is talking to Moses, who'd been dead for over 1,400 years. He's been talking to Elijah, who's been gone for about 900 years. You, you would think if there was ever a time for silence, for hushed silence, this was it. But Peter, who's never at a loss for words, always has something to say. When he should have said nothing, he interjects here. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You've been in a situation like this before. Maybe it's an awkward situation. You don't know what to say. You just begin blathering on about nothing. And this is Peter. He's talkative. He's chatty in his terror. Uh, now on the surface, it seems like a noble thing that Peter suggests. Uh, Lord, it's wonderful that Moses and Elijah are here with you. Let's make three tabernacles. Uh, let's prolong this experience. This is glorious. Let's stay on the mountaintop forever. Let's enjoy this glorious moment. But you see, even here, Peter fails to grasp the greatness of Christ because his words imply that there is equality between Peter, or between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. These, these tents, these earthly habitations for heavenly beings, uh, he wants to put them up. And, and, uh, but Moses and Elijah, they, they should not be seen here as equals with Jesus or on the same level. They are simply witnesses to him. Uh, remember Moses when he was on Sinai, draws near to God. He, he only beheld the reflected glory of God in Exodus 33. 
he had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It's emanating from him. Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah and Moses and every other prophet have done. He is the glory of God in human form. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Uh, back in 1992, the astrophysicist Michael Hart wrote a book titled The 100. The 100. It was a ranking of the most influential persons in history. And uh, this book contained the biographies of each person and rank and, and Michael Hart ranked them in order from the most influential to the least influential in all history, the top 100. And he guessed where he ranked Jesus. Number three. Number three. Uh, and you would say, as Christians, we would say, why is Jesus at number three? Well, the disciples have a similar perspective regarding Christ. They apparently saw him as equal to Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, they are, they are they're heroes. Uh, but what they fail to realize is that right before them, they're seeing the Lord transfigured, and that's meant to change their perspective. Jesus cannot be put on the same level as the prophets throughout history, whether it's Muhammad or the Buddha or Moses or Elijah. Jesus alone is God's son. He is the exact representation of his being. He is the one who uh, is, is radiating the, the effulgence of God's glory. So, from his power and glory, we turn to worship. What is the only proper response? When you are given a glimpse into the glory of the Son of God, you fall on your face. You worship. As verse 7 says, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. How does this voice tell the disciples to worship? Listen to him. Listen to what Jesus says. Affirm what he says. Believe what he says. Obey what he says. That's how you worship. Just as, just as, the, just as it happened at his baptism, Jesus receives this public endorsement from his Father. So notice how Mark, in chapter, Mark chapters 8 and 9, has linked together the confession of Christ, or the, uh, the Peter's confession of Christ, in Mark 8, 29, You are the Christ, with then Jesus' teaching on discipleship, the hard sayings that they will have to endure if they follow him with total commitment. And then there is the Father's affirmation and authentication of his Son. So in Peter's confession, Mark teaches us how disciples are to think about Jesus. And now in the transfiguration, we're taught how to worship Jesus. We're taught how to behold his true nature. Hear Christ. That's what the voice from heaven says. Listen to Christ. Listen to him. He is the great teacher. We must learn from him. If you would be wise, listen to the truth from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. To avoid error, follow him. So the grand question that concerns all of us is not, what does humanity say? What do the politicians say? What do the philosophers say? What does Christ say? Hear him. Abide in him, lean on him, look to him in faith. And the point is re-emphasized in verse 8. They no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So this grand moment ends. Not even Moses or Elijah 
with all of their greatness, can compare with Jesus, because as this episode ends, the spotlight is left standing on Christ alone. He alone is illuminated here. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. Because Jesus alone is able to give what Elijah could not give, what Moses could not give, what no one else could ever deliver. It is only through Christ that we can bridge the gap into the very heart of reality, into union and communion with God. Jesus is that temple. He is that tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles. He is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And so the writer of Hebrews begins his letter. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Great prophets of old, Old Testament heroes like Moses and Elijah. They compare, not a whit, to Christ. Jesus is the ultimate expression of Christ. And Peter, James, and John were to listen to what Jesus said about the necessity of his death, even if what Jesus said was difficult for them to hear, that he would die, that he would suffer, that he would uh, die on the cross, that he would be raised. We need to listen to Jesus' words about all of life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And may we listen to no other voice.